You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1027 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you on a Wednesday evening into Thursday. And today's podcast is brought to you by Michelob Ultra. At only 95 calories, 2.6 carbs, it's only worth it if you enjoy it. Stay tuned for the Ultra Moment segment coming up later in the episode. Today's podcast will be myself and good friend of the program, Glenn Willis of Peachtree Hoops, talking about Hawks Bucks after game four and before game five. Uh, we are 24 hours away as I'm recording this, basically. From the start of Game 5 in Milwaukee, and uh, plenty to get to about that before I even bring Glenn in, the injury report is going to dominate the proceedings in advance of Game 5. Um, first, the latest on Giannis, as he was uh, injured in, in the third quarter of Game 4. Adrian, Adrian Wojnarowski and Zach Lowe of ESPN reported there was no structural damage to Giannis's left knee after the awkward landing that he had against the Hawks in Game 4, and the ligaments are sound. With that said, his timetable to return is not definitive at this point in time, and he's listed as doubtful officially. That does not mean he's definitely out, but doubtful means doubtful, which means he's doubtful to play. Uh, we'll see what happens there, but that's obviously a huge factor, a two-time MVP, um, their centerpiece on both ends of the floor, so a huge loss if Milwaukee is unable to have him on the floor. Um, for the Hawks, also some injury stuff there. Trey Young is listed as questionable with his right foot bone bruise after not playing game four. No update at all from Nate McMillan on either Young or Capella. And Capella is also questionable after he had um, got hit in the eye. He's listed as questionable with right eye inflammation. That is all we know at this moment in time on both guys. So they are listed at a higher level of likelihood than Giannis. But it would not be a shock if either or both miss this game. So we'll see what happens between now and the start of Game 5. And uh, I think that just the theme overall is that uncertainty with regard to personnel. Um, Bogdanovich, by the way, is still probable for Atlanta. He looked, he looked much better in Game 4, so I expect him to play if I, if I had to guess at this moment in time. Um, our friends at BetOnline.ag have the Hawks listed as two-point underdogs in Milwaukee. That is a much smaller number than it was earlier in the series. Uh, obviously, that's some Giannis, uh, I would say, hedging. Also, the Hawks playing better in the series than you might expect as a part of that as well. I'm not sure what would happen to that line if any of the you know the singular parties are, are ruled out, particularly Giannis or Trey. If both guys are out, maybe it stays in that range. If Giannis is out and Trey is in, maybe the Hawks end up being favored or at least close to it. My tip-off, we'd all be guessing, but right now, as of Wednesday night, it is Hawks plus two on Bet Online. And for the series, BetOnline has the Bucks at minus 122 to win the series. A very, very slight favorite, but basically a virtual coin flip, which is a massive, massive turnaround in only one game. As I said before, game four, the betting market, but online had the Hawks as like a 90% underdog, basically 90% plus for Milwaukee to win the series. And now it's 52, 48, something like that. So uh, a lot of movement, you know, that, that happens when you, when you win a game and Giannis gets hurt, but uh, we'll come back. We'll come back to that if we need to, but that is sort of the setting the stage for game five on Thursday. Before we bring in Glenn, I also want to play some audio for you from Nate McMillan on Wednesday, talking about two of the youngest guys making an impact in game four. Um, this first, this first uh, clip I'm going to play for you is actually part of a very, very long answer. I'm not going to include the entire thing, but it's about Cam Reddish, and I clipped that portion of it. So here's what Nate had to say about Reddish after his fantastic game in Game 4. Uh, you know, Cam hasn't played a lot for us, but last night, uh, you know, he uh, we was able to get him in rotation, and he really came up big for us last night. I thought he played with a lot of poise, uh, you know, under control, just was solid on both ends of the floor. 
you know, bringing that length. You know, he, I think he had five or six rebounds. Uh, you know, so we needed all of that, uh, you know, from our guys. So basically, I'm still learning uh, with our group. Uh, really, I've, I've only <laughs> coached Cam for two, three games um, uh, because when when he went out, uh, you know, Coach Pierce was was coaching at that time. Uh, this is I've only had really two, three games to uh, to work with him. And uh, the kid has a lot of talent uh, and he, he really helped us out last night. It's kind of easy to forget that Nate did not coach Cam as the head coach. Obviously, he was on the staff and Cam was playing this earlier this year. But him being out so long, a lot has changed. The fact that he was able to come in and do that in game four. We'll get into that more with Glenn later on, but uh, just a striking performance from Cam and a lot of fun to watch and uh, definitely easy, an easy guy to root for with the way that he was enjoying himself during that game. Um, also, McMillan talked about Anyaka Kongwu, who I thought was fantastic, as I discussed yesterday on the podcast. By the way, if you missed anything from yesterday's show, it's still very much available in my Game 4 recap podcast. Subscribe, rate, review, etc. But Sarah Spencer of the AJC, friend of the podcast as well, asked Nate about Anyaka, and here he's what he had to say sort of in a back and forth with Sarah about the Rookie Center. Hey, Nate, um, what kind of growth have you seen from Onyeka uh, throughout these playoffs? It seems like he's been able to give you guys some big energy plays and, and is just playing well out there. He's doing a really good job. You know, he's showing that, you know, his, uh, his feel for the game, he has a good feel for the game. I think his basketball IQ is very high, uh, and that has shown uh, really throughout the season, uh, you know, having to make adjustments on uh, you know what to do out on the floor as far as setting angles of screens, uh, uh, rolling to the basket, the timing, uh, you know, playing off of Gallinari. A lot of times teams are trying to uh, front the post, so the connection of the two bigs is really important. And he's done a really good job of making reads uh, on the offensive end of the floor. Defensively, uh, he continues to uh, improve. Uh, on his pick and roll defense, uh, he's had to, uh, you know, basically uh, guard Giannis, uh, you know, so keeping a, a forward like that, really uh, a point forward in front of you. Uh, he's really done a good job, solid job of doing that, as well as rotating, uh, defending the basket and rebounding the basketball. So he continues to show uh, growth. Uh, throughout, you know, he's done that throughout the season and certainly throughout these playoffs uh, where he has been very productive for us. Have you been impressed with just kind of the maturity and, and poise you're seeing from him considering that, I mean, he's only 20 and he's, he's battling so well in, you know, conference finals? Yeah, I mean, he, he, does, he has a calmness about him. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he doesn't get out there and he's not afraid. Uh, you know, he's a confident player. He asks a lot of questions about, you know, what is needed, what should I do? Uh, you know, so he's constantly uh, asking questions uh, to our coaches about, you know, uh, things that uh, he needs to do and how to do them. And uh, he has shown that growth. So uh, he is he, he does play as a, uh, a very mature uh, rookie uh, coming into this league. 
I can't say it any better than that, but uh, I will I will say that Akongwu is a guy I've always enjoyed a lot. I was high on him in the draft, etc., and it's just been fun to see him sort of put on a show in these playoffs and play that. You know, it's still a small role, but doing it very, very well and uh, shining a bright light on the future. So I want to at least pass along that optimism because uh, everyone's kind of basking in the glow of the way that he's been playing in this postseason. All right, before I bring in Glenn, a segment brought to you by our friends at Michelob Ultra, and it's the Ultra Moment of the Week. There were a lot of memorable moments from Game 4 for the Hawks. Uh, anytime you want to get a playoff game by 22 points in the conference finals, that's a massive moment. Uh, Lou Williams making every shot that he took in the first half. Bogey making a bunch of threes, including three in a short order, and also lots of celebrations from him. The photo of Trey on the bench celebrating that made the rounds. Even Cam making his impact defensively on Middleton, etc. And it's tough to pick just one from that, but for the wildness of it, I'm going to go with Clint Capella's over-the-backboard shot in the fourth quarter. I said on yesterday's show, it was kind of the dagger of the night. The Hawks were going to win anyway, most likely, but once that went in, McMillan even said it today that he felt like it was going to be their night when that shot went through. And they were up a lot already. Um, but still, it's just kind of a microcosm of things going well and Capella being probably the last guy on the whole roster that would make that shot, uh, the lack of touch that he sometimes has. And he's a great player, but that was kind of a funny moment in a lot of different ways. But it made the rounds, uh, got a lot of Twitter jokes off, all that stuff. It's a great moment if they're, since we're discussing moments. But it would have been notable for sure given anybody that made that shot in that spot in the fourth quarter. But it kind of put the game away. And also it was Capella, the perfect storm of uh, very, very much an entertaining moment in that basketball game. Go check out a ton of other exciting Ultra Moments with the hashtag Ultra Moment. 95 calories with six carbs, only worth it if you enjoy it. Joy creates success, and enjoyment isn't the end game, it's the whole game. The Michelob Ultra Moment this week goes to Clint Capella over the backboard with a flare in Game 4. I am joined now by frequent friend of the podcast, Glenn Willis of Peachtree Hoops. How are you, sir? I'm good, Brad. How are you doing? We're all hanging in there. We were talking before we started recording. You know, a lot of late nights right now. Not not as late yeah. for you, I guess, because yeah. you're on the West Coast. But even then, I've seen you tweeting at like 3.30 Eastern, which is still late for you, even on the West Coast. Yeah, I I don't often. I, I try to avoid doing that midweek. But last night, I was like, I had a, I had a, I just had a crazy day today. It wrapped up relatively early. But I was like, if I don't get these out tonight, I never will. <laughs> you know, and this every other day schedule, sometimes you just have to like, do it when you can, and that's what I did last night. So, yeah, listen, uh, no one's no one's uh, settled right now. There's a lot happening in this series. We are recording this Wednesday evening, post injury report. But uh, if anything happens later on, uh, forgive me. We'll do what we can here. But uh, a lot to get into. You know, the Hawks' evening in the series is, of course, the headline in itself. Then you have the, all of the injury questions with Trey and Click Capella now, and of course Giannis, um, which kind of throws. A wrench into things. Before we get into some nerdy adjustment stuff, as we are wont to do, I wanted to ask you, like, broadly speaking, uh, and we could dive deeper into this, but, you know, what's what's your reaction to, I guess it's good news that Giannis is, does not have structural damage, but also the fact that he could cer- he could certainly be out for the series, if not just for Game 5, we're all guessing, but, you know, I think it goes without saying that it's, that it's a pretty real impact, but how big of an impact and what do you sort of see if Giannis can't be out there? Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly, to state the obvious, it opens the door for the Hawks, you know, more broadly than before. The, you know, two-time MVP going down, you know, is going to shift the way that I think anyone sees the series. Um, but I, I, I try to avoid um, seeing things along the lines of, well, Giannis is out, or if Giannis is out, that means X and Y and Z is going to happen. What The way that I look at it is that it really shifts a burden onto Bucks and the coaching, the Bucks and the coaching staff, 
to figure out how to recalibrate their offense. You know, everything has understandably and rightfully been built around Giannis, um, you know, for even more than this year. But in the postseason, they've even kind of refined down to like the nail pick and roll they run with Middleton, et cetera, et cetera. And it's going to have to be Drew and Middleton, probably with Middleton getting the bigger share there. But it's not just a matter of like, so, hey, hey, you know, Chris, you got to go do this. It's what can the Bucks coaching staff come up with to give those two guys something that they can work with, whether it's actions or, you know, whatever that might be, you know, creating mismatches. And so I think that the kind of the intellectual burden really does shift to Coach Bud and his staff to come up with something that Drew and Chris might be able to use to create enough offense to um, you know, be represented mostly, you know, representative of kind of what they normally can produce even with Giannis. And that's a tall task, not saying that's easy, but, you know, it's hard for me to speculate what the outlook might be until I see what they might come up with for those two guys. So that's, that's where my interest most heavily lies right now. Yeah. And I think uh, first I agree with that. And also I think that Giannis is, is is unique in a lot of ways, but also is a rare guy who his impact is very clearly on both ends of the floor. I think defensively, they're also in some peril here if he can't play, not only because he's an awesome defender, but because he's the only guy that can do what he does on their roster, basically. Um, you know, you go you go to Bobby Portis, uh, maybe you go to more Brooke Lopez, but their bench is not exactly robust. I know the Hawks are shorthanded as well without Hunter, and they're not you know incredibly deep right now, but... Uh, if you line the, if you line the, te- the two teams up and say, just for example, we don't know anything about Trey just yet, but if you just say, all right, no Trey, no Giannis, I, I think I feel better about the Hawks than I do about the Bucks, um, just because of uh, how how much more well rounded their roster is. Uh, you still have to go into Milwaukee for two of these three games, but uh, it's just a big loss on top of just Giannis being awesome. It also has a factor of going deeper into that Milwaukee bench, which has uh, been pretty shaky so far in the series. Yeah, I agree. On paper, the I think the Hawks are a better team, minus their best player, than the Bucks are. Um, and you know, the Hawks you know, brought a lot of depth into the season. Sometimes when you are looking to work from a clean cap sheet for the first time, like Travis Slink was this year, you can kind of build quite a bit of depth. That might be harder to replicate that, you know, going forward. But that's for a, a, a conversation at a later date. Um, but you know, especially with Bogdanovich looking as good as he did. Uh, you know, in game four, that's what really jumps out to me as something that makes me think, yeah, if they're, if the Bucks are missing Giannis and the Hawks are missing um, Trey, if, you know, you can get, you know, it's kind of steadiness from Lou. Uh, Herder's been so good. I'm, I imagine we'll talk a little bit about him. Yep. But if Bogdanovich is, is more of what he was in game four than when he's, what he's been for several weeks now, that really, in my mind, swing, swing things uh, in the Hawks' favor. And, you know, and even I've been watching, you know, with interest, John Collins. You know, he's, I was, you know, some of the things I put on Twitter, I was like, he scored four points last night, but his level of activity and how hard he worked that whole game is, is, is making a difference. And he's just looking like a guy who jumps out at you as being really committed to doing what the team needs him to do, irrespective of what his stat line might look like for that night. And yeah, I know that might sound like coach cliche speak, but he really opened up a lot of stuff for other people. And that's not to say the Bucks aren't doing that, but when you have a guy like Giannis who creates so many points of leverage on both ends of the court, you know, you don't, you're not, um, you, you don't have to 
work that way all the time. And so, you know, the Bucks are, like I mentioned a minute ago, are going to have to recalibrate. But to me, I think they're, I think they're pretty even teams because of just how sound the Bucks are in a lot of areas of the game, how good they are creating fast break points and, and, and stuff, and how good they are kind of letting Brooke get onto the offensive glass. But if Bogdanovich is the better version of himself like we saw in game four, I think that that moves the needle in the Hawks' favor quite a bit for me. Yeah, I think that's huge. And we can talk about that now, I think. Uh, you know, part of my thought process in talking to you is kind of getting your feel about the offense in general. You know, Trey, again, might play. We don't know. But they were able to score at a pretty impressive rate given that Trey wasn't out there. You know, I, I focus on the defense a lot. I think that was with good reason, and we'll come back to that. Um, but offensively, they sneakily were quite good uh, in game four. And part of that's Lou, who had a great game. But like, as you mentioned, you know, having Herter and Bogdanovich both playing well and Herter didn't have his three point shot, but he was attacking and getting into that mid into that mid range area, getting all the way to the rim and Bogey just getting up 14 threes uh, and obviously making six of them as well was significant. Uh, did you see anything that they sort of unlocked or was it just personnel? Like where, where did you see that spectrum falling with the Hawks, obviously finding something that was more effective offensively? Well, I mean, to me, I talked about this a little bit with Kevin last night, so I don't want to totally replicate it, but. The Bucks forcing Trey off ball, you know, and the Hawks um, dealing with that, starting to adjust for that in game two going forward and then all of game three, I sort of primed the Hawks to go into this game without Trey because it was on Herder and it was on Bogdanovich and it was on Lou to play some minutes with Trey and to create some, you know, initiation through other guys. I think that made it less. Um, you know, unfamiliar to them in this game to go into a game where those guys had to be the guys creating because that wasn't really a new thing for game four. The, um, you know, Trey's ball handling wasn't there and his ability to do a lot of the things he can do obviously wasn't there, but it's not like it was a complete shift of initiation responsibilities to completely new guys who weren't doing that before. So I thought that helped a lot. Um, but the other thing for me was I thought, um, you know, especially in the third quarter when the Hawks, I think, hit 7 to 12 from the three-point line, when Gallo and JC were on together, they were running a lot of, like, bi-directional cross-screen, and they were using you know, post-presence on both sides, Gallo on one side, JC on the other, to keep the Bucks from jumping that one-sided post kind of entry past. Um, and that opened up a lot of space. Um, Gallo mostly took advantage of scoring in that area, but then also um, kind of kept the, the Bucks from kind of helping over to the strong side like they do so much. So that was the one thing that I saw from a sort of schematic standpoint. But apart from that, I thought it was just patient, um, under control, ball handling, creation, and just a lot of smart plays. Yeah, I, I recall the, the bucket Lou got when he kind of cut down the lane and mm -hmm. was looking to set a screen for someone and they, the Bucks just forgot he was there. And <laughs> some of the work Okongwu did to make himself available. So it was just smart, heady, patient, under control play with a little bit of that JC and Gallo bi-directional cross screen, screen mixed in was basically what I saw. Yeah, and I think that this kind of makes sense logically, but you can't expect Lou to score 21 points on like 11 possessions offensively. Uh, that's not sustainable, but he was he was brilliant in that game. Uh, to your point, under control is a good way to put it, and just that veteran presence and that you know that craft that he has that's so well documented. But we've also seen Lou have bad games or games where he's um, kind of a liability on some, in some respects. So you can't expect him to sort of upgrade that every night. And that's why it's so big that they got what they got from Herder and Magdanovich because those guys are your more prominent established guys on the wing. And um, 
on a night when Collins has four points and they score like that without Trey, it just would have been kind of unthinkable in some ways. Um, and I, I actually thought that you made a good point about Collins. I think it was with Kevin that Collins was better than the stat sheet. I tried to say that a little bit defensively in particular. I thought he was very, very good. But even offensively, you could say that I think he made a bigger impact than his two for eight for four points would tell you. That's kind of obvious, I think. But also, um, it's it's just hard to, for some people to sort of, uh, I would say, quantify that. It's just difficult to like wrap your mind around that, that, that Collins was actually um, could have been a more positive force than you might think, given that he scored four points. Yeah, I, I thought that late, I think it was in the fourth quarter, the, with less than six minutes to go, so the latter half of the fourth quarter, when he got a, a post-touch, uh, I think it was Drew on him, and he, he put his hand up, he was assertive, he was aggressive, and it's just, you don't always see a guy with two points, you know, that late in the game still looking for opportunities to, you know, create his own shot in that sense of, of having a, a mismatch to go attack there. And I just thought it said so much about where his head is. Like, you could just almost you know, be sure in watching him that he didn't really care what his stat sheet looked like. He was still looking for opportunities to make an impact for his team. And that's those are the, the little things that make me feel increasingly optimistic about the Hawks' chances in the series because you know, the, term, the phrase I've been using for a while now is regardless of circumstance, they just seem to just stay on task. And, you know, you don't see them getting dramatic. You don't see them – uh, you know, kind of losing their mind, and you know, get, game two uh, with you know Trey reacted to some things uh, where he kind of lost um, his sense of what he needed to be doing for a bit. The Bucks threw a ton at him in that game, so but it would be unfair for me not to call out that one exception. But across the Knicks series and then the Sixers series, when they you know fought their way back in that series, their ability to just stay on task has just been impressive. Um, and that, with some of the things we saw in game four, make me feel like. Hawks have a real shot here, you know? Yeah. Um, before we get to some defensive stuff, and I agree with you, I, I know I sort of quote tweeted you earlier on the just the fact that just how solid they were in this game and how professional of an effort it was. Last thing on the offense, though, do you think the shot quality matched the results? Because somebody asked me that and actually didn't have a real answer for them. I thought the shot quality was pretty decent, but they also shot the ball, you know, pretty darn well. Do you think that was uh, indicative, or was that a night when the Hawks might have been a little bit over their heads? Well, we could start with Clint's shot. That, that's well, that one, yeah, that, <laughs> that, that one's definitely even Nate. Even Nate today um, on his practice availability kind of had a laugh about that one and how they kind of knew it was their night when that went in. Now, granted, they were already up by like what eighteen at that point, so it was probably right. getting close to over. But uh, if you take that one out, because that one, I think we can all agree was uh, some some noise. Well, <laughs> well, I'm I'm personally not going to bank on Cam shooting this well again. I think it's. I mean, I'm so happy for him that, that he had a good night and was able to help his team and. And all of that, but he's, you know, at best he's been an up and down cheater his whole career, you know, and so we'll, you know, we'll see. But I'm not making on that. That was a, to me, an unexpected shooting night from Cam. And then, you know, Gallo is either, you know, on one end of the spectrum or the other. It seems like, and he was, you know, not only making shots, well, something he was getting good shots, and the Bucks don't always kind of allow him to do that, you know, um, and. But the other thing for me is that to watch Bogdanovich get to a dribble and a step back and make those shots, that's not something we've seen for a few weeks. And and so to me, that was unexpected. Can he – is he at a place now physically where he can do that, provide that in each game? I have no idea. But I thought Cam outshot his baseline. I thought Bogdanovich outshot the baseline he's had for a while. I thought Okongwu kind of, you know – 
got good shots, but he like made made whatever he took. He kind of made, <laughs> you know, he got an and one there. And yeah, so, the, the one floater that he made was like not a not not a super tough shot, but also not one that you can just assume he's going to make every time. Right, and and then the the end one he got was a you know a pretty tough angle on a right handed bank shot from the left, which is hard, you know. Um, but I, I don't want to take any credit away from any of those guys, but I do feel like they outshot the profile, not in the sense of they were taking bad shots, but when the, those guys, especially Okongwu, um, even Capella, with some of the, he, he made a kind of a really low percentage um, shot cutting down the middle of the lane himself at one point in time. I was shocked it went in. But when your tertiary shooters are all kind of making the handful of shots they get, it's, it's going to get have you shooting pretty well above what your baseline should be. So I, I thought they took and created mostly good shots. I still think they all shot their shot profile by a little bit. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that. You know, other than other than Collins and maybe Bogey going one of five on twos, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, guys you could point to that, that had underwater nights, whereas there were a few that were above their head, you know, Lou in particular, I would say, uh, and Cam. So, but anyway, I, I think the Hawks did play quite well on offense. Uh, yeah. would, you, would you agree with that? I mean, it sounds like you, I've said that multiple times, but I mean, they scored very effectively, which is all that really matters in the end. But I thought they, I thought their game plan, their game plan, I should say, and also their, you know, their efficiency, their, general execution was quite good, particularly when you factor in that they were playing Chris Dunn at times. They were playing right. they were playing Cam at times and Lou was great, but still Lou only played thirty five minutes and I say only, but there were thirteen minutes without Lou and they still managed to stay sort of stay afloat with those minutes. Yeah, I mean so for me, um and maybe this will be a bit of a transition, but there's a relationship between how you're playing on defense and the amount of pressure you feel on offense. And they were so good on defense last night that I think and, you know, from, again, I, I want to stipulate always, I've never, you know, coached even close to NBA level, but my own history tells me that a team knows when they're playing good defense and a team knows when they're kind of barely holding on on defense, if not completely like losing the ability to function on defense. And when the team knows that they are executing really well on defense, it takes so much pressure off of them, mm. you know, from a shooting perspective. Because I think when you know you're not holding up defensively, when you're putting a shot up, you're like, I've got to make this. There's no way we're going to, you know, stay in this game if we're not basically making all every single open shot we get. And so I do think there's a relationship between how good they were from start to finish on defense last night and the ball going in, you know. And, and so that that's not a... I don't. I don't view that as being a random variable. No. When you're playing a defense, I think you put less pressure on yourself offensively, and that helps you. Yeah, and you also create, you know, more not necessarily fast breaks, but more like secondary breaks, and you're t- you're not taking the ball out of the net as much, and that can help your offense as well. Which I think it all kind of runs together. Um, before I ask you about some offensive stuff, I want to hear from, um, from our sponsors on the podcast today. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models in the car or truck world, it's now impossible to stock all the parts that you need in a traditional chain storefront. Why would you endure often pointless questioning from someone at a storefront and have to wait while someone at the counter orders the parts on the computer, only choosing the brand that the warehouse happens to carry? You have computers with access to rockauto.com right now, both at home and in your pocket. Rockauto.com is family business, serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for all the audio and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. 
They have everything you need from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic car or your daily driver, get everything you need, just a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is uniquely and remarkably easy to navigate. Quickly see all the parts available for your car and choose the brands, specs, and prices that you prefer. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or your truck. And from there, you went right locked on in their How Did You Hear About Us box to know that we sent you to them. Amazing selection, reliable low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com. All right, Glenn, uh, I want to ask you about the offense. Sorry, about the defense now. <laughs> we talked about the offense. Um, one thing that I noticed, and I'm not sure if you saw the same thing I did, it felt like the Hawks made a concerted effort, you know, pre honest injury to take away the rim in game four. Now, every team wants to do that, but it felt like the Hawks, both um, schematically and also execution-wise, really focused on that. They allowed 25 points in the paint in the first three quarters. That was heaven and earth better than their previous matchups. And... You know, while the Bucks got a bunch of good looks from three, they missed them, and those are just more high-variance looks. So uh, does that change at all if Giannis doesn't play? Because obviously he's their number one rim attack guy. Um, and did you also see what I saw in terms of that focus? Yeah, for sure. I, I thought, um, especially with the Middleton, Giannis pick and roll, which is really what they tried to go through in the third quarter, and it, it would it would be unfair to not mention that the Bucks were potentially kind of breaking through a bit offensively when Giannis got hurt. Um, you know, they had, they were generating some shots at the rim and they were you know running some stuff that got Giannis downhill. That, that, that doesn't mean the Hawks couldn't have held up to that. We'll, we'll never know, but defensively they were basically pulling both defenders on the weak side and to tag Giannis. So having two guys tag Giannis is a ton of, resource commitment to that and then also the big was basically not worry about worrying about containing the ball handler and getting back the honest too so it was almost like they were using three players to contain the honest at the rim you know they were letting middleton for example have a floater if that's what he wanted to get to that's how milwaukee basically defended trey in the first game when he made a million floaters on his way to 48 points um and but i think that's what you have to do and it's not just a matter of like, well, let's pull, you know, both weak side defenders in off their shooters, helping on Giannis feet to the rim. Because once you do that against a team like the Bucks, you know, one of the better shooting teams in the league, then you have to be committed to closing, working really hard and closing out on shooters. And that might be kind of the highest effort task you ask for NBA defenders, especially in a series where you're playing every other night and you're shortening the rotation. And I thought they were, awesome at running at shooters closing out on guys and so i i just want to kind of point out it's like it's not just a matter of like hey let's pull guys in and keep me on off the rim because then you're creating a ton of workload for yourself to get back out and make sure you're not giving up you know 20 or whatever open three-point shot so i thought the prioritization was good number one keep you on off the rim as best you can and then secondarily you know close out on the shooters and i thought they did that well enough to, to at least impact the bucks and not see them go like 40% from the three point line. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was, that was most of it. Um, but even um, when Giannis was threatening as a dribbler, they were showing harder. Uh, they're the nearest uh, help defender. Um, there was a play I put on Twitter last night where Bogdanovich was showing down on the Middleton after Giannis went out and Okongwu came across the lane and showed there as well. And they showed three bodies, even in the Middleton down there. Um, and so just the timing and the rhythm and the communication of kind of everything they were executing on defense was as good as I recall seeing it. And like I talked about with Kevin about last night was, can we reasonably expect them to execute defensively at that level again? 
I don't know if we can. That was that may have been the best they could ever do. But if they even if they can get to eighty ninety percent of that going forward, I think that they still have a, a pretty good shot. But that that's mostly what I saw. Yeah, that all tracks to me. And there's a number of things we can talk about. One thing I wanted to make sure I ask you before I forget to is about Cam's impact, which I think I talked about it. Um, and you can talk about it, but it, you, I watched the game back after the podcast last night, and uh, it's just you cannot replicate the kind of length and activity and acumen that Cam was showing, particularly when you compare it to what the Hawks have had in this entire playoff run. I mean, honestly, it's still incredible to me that the Hawks have been able to do this without anyone in that kind of role. You know, Herter's done a good job defensively for sure, and Bogey is a strong guy, but you, they don't have a traditionally, you know, 6'8", six, 6'9", six, dominant wing defender on the roster. At least they haven't to this point, and now Cam did what he did. Um, last night, did, were you as impressed as I was with his defense? Because you know his offense is more of a question mark. Whereas defense, I was just blown away by the fact that he was able to do that on Middleton and also just in his first real you know high level minutes in four plus months. It was uh, pretty staggering to me. Yeah, I thought it was kind of crazy. I, I mean, we know what he can do and we know what he's capable of, and and yeah. nothing he did last night was beyond like his capability for sure. So it wasn't this like crazy outlier thing. But for him to be as calibrated as he was, like most people who miss all that time get a little bit of run in game two, but not in real leverage minutes, except for maybe just a handful. You know, when when you're trying to navigate over ball screens and stay attached to the ball, I I have no idea how he like navigated space like the way he did, like without getting like fouls without bumping into the screener, you know, forcefully or without, you know, getting grabby with the ball. I mean, it's, he was like almost perfect in his screen navigation and being disruptive um, and, and knowing even like in a nuanced area, like I, I can't really keep my guy from getting to the screen, but I'm going to change his angle, the angle he's taking toward the screen and make him work more horizontally than, North South. I mean, I was just blown away at how precise he was and everything he did defensively, considering how little he's played and how long it's been since he's been asked to do that. That's just kind of crazy to me that he was able to do that. But he, he definitely deserves a lot of credit for being ready and finding some way to be that precise in his first real extended game action in since like third week of February, I think. Yeah, I mean, four, four plus months is uh, is pretty crazy. And I think, you know, I don't want to attribute all of it because it was not only Cam that changed the defense from where they were to where they were last night, but that's a huge impact. Um, I got asked this on the, on the radio actually earlier today. Uh, basically, it was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it was like, you know, are the Hawks now just this defensive team because Trey Young's not playing? And my response was no, because you know if you look at who was playing point guard, Lou Williams is not uh, great shakes defensively. It wasn't like they replaced Lou uh, Trey Young with Chris Dunn for 48 minutes uh, last night. Uh, Lou is not a great defender, so it wasn't like that was it. That wasn't the reason why they were better. But I mean, what else was it other than other than Cam and just the ex- was it just the execution and having a game plan sticking to it? Did you? I mean, did anybody else pop out to you individually that um, sort of? transformed what they were able to do because you know the Bucks had a part in it for sure Milwaukee was I thought not not particularly great offensively we'll say in game four but the Hawks were also forcing them into some of those looks yeah I thought the next guy who deserved a lot of individual credit was a Kongu and just the way he held up one-on-one on Giannis in the time that he had on the court with him 
Um, and again, I, I, I'm at a point now where I watch that and I don't look at it as something that he can't replicate, you know, pretty consistently. Um, but most teams, even teams that make it this far in the playoffs, when your starting center comes off and your backup center goes on, you're kind of trying to survive those minutes defensively and you refactor sometimes like the way you're defending at the point of attack because you don't have as much help behind you, you know, naturally most second string centers are not going to be the same defenders as first string guys, first unit guys. Um, but basically there was no drop off when Capella went off and the Congo came on. I thought Gallo held up a lot better uh, in this game than he had before in the minutes where it was just he and Collins, but to, I even think a Congo, I, I, I hesitate to say this because of all, a lot of the conversations on Twitter, but I thought a Congo was actually better one-on-one uh, versus Giannis. And the reason I hesitate to say that is that I've saw people, I've seen people say like a Congo is better on a B than Capella. And I'm like, okay, you know, a Congo <laughs> had a B for what, like six minutes a game, five minutes a game at the most. And Capella had him all the other times. So yeah, exactly. Volume is a thing defensively as well. And the way that Capella made progress defensively, every game in that series had a massive impact on the Hawks winning that. Um, but if we just want to talk about just last night, uh, Kongu was ridiculous. Yeah, uh, he was, he was good, awesome. <laughs> you know. And for for a team to not have to change anything they're doing um, from a scheme perspective or what have you, when the backup center comes on, it has tremendous continuity value. Uh, and especially when the team has started so solidly defensively, to be able to just plug your backup guy in and not change anything and to see that performance just stay steady has tremendous value. So I, I thought he was every bit as good as Cam in the sense of just helping maintain all the good things that they were doing when Capella went off. Yeah, and you know, to be able to throw out, it wasn't 48 minutes because of the blowout, but to be able to put out you know, the entire game's worth of minutes if they want to on defense with one of those guys at the five is uh, quite helpful with the way Kongwu is playing. And honestly, you mentioned Gallo. I agree that he was better defensively in game four. I was also stunned to see, again, part of this is the fourth quarter was garbage time, um, at least for a lot of it. But he played 19 minutes, and I would have lost a bet on Gallo's minutes, particularly when you tell me Trey's out. I thought they were going to need Gallinari's offense, uh, and they kind of did in the first half at times. He was it, They were sort of isolating him and getting him in those mismatches in the post, but I was kind of surprised how little he played just because of the logistics involved and when you kind of need that offensive punch. Like I guess maybe his minutes went to Chris Dunn. I, I have no idea how that actually worked, how that actually stacked up, but I just kind of noticed that again as I was, look, I was looking at the box score. Like, Gallo didn't play very much, which is, that's new. Yeah, and I, I think that's because they basically didn't play the Gallo-JC Clint lineup. And they, no, not which, at all, I don't think. Yeah, with Trey out, they need more ball handling, and, and Cam playing was not just about defense. They needed more ball handling on the court. And Nate, Nate said and that, he, by the way, I think. Oh, okay, yeah. And and like I said to Kevin last night, if you think Solo gives you a little shooting, he gives you less ball handling. <laughs> yeah, he cannot. So, uh, I, I think you and I are uh, on the higher side of respecting Solo's contributions, but he is uh, not a ball handler, that's for sure. Right. And, then, and even Dunn, too. Dunn can oh. at least you know, <laughs> handle the basketball. Well, can know? he? I mean, it, I, I'm not sure that was the case last night. I think in practice that's true. But I was kind of actually kind of not surprised because he hasn't played in so long, really. But Dunn, uh, Dunn's offense is a different podcast. But... Uh, yeah. We kind of knew that he was not going to be very good offensively, but after the layoff, he looked, I would say, non. what's the word for it? Uh, what's the kind word for it? Uh, non 
representative of an NBA guard <laughs> last night right. offensively. Uh, anyway, I, 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 he, I he had I thought he had a couple of ugly moments with the ball, but I thought on the whole he was still useful. Just having someone that could just even having any, a guard out there, yeah, yeah, and a guy that can bring the ball up. I mean. I know the average NBA fan might not know, but just bringing the ball up in a, re- in a regular season NBA game is a ton of work to do that securely and safely and get your team into the right thing. And he at least did that like eight times. And that, that alone has some value. Sure. It's marginal value, but it has value. And, and so I thought, you know, part of what they did with reducing Gallo's minutes was just to throw more point of attack defense primarily at Middleton, a little bit at Drew also, but I, th- I thought Herder covered a lot of the Drew responsibility. Um, but, you know, it also kept Gallo fresh. He looked good every minute he was on. Yeah, you know, he, he looks better. I, I don't know if that, that was strategic or if it just kind of worked out that way, but it it certainly looked a lot better. And then for whatever minutes Gallo and JC were on, again, I think JC deserves a lot of credit because he, if you ask me who played the hardest in that game last night, I would say it was probably John Collins. He was flying uh, around on defense. I mean, I, I noticed on the rewatch too. He was not that he not, not that he doesn't often do that because he's really really upped his effort level um, in the last year plus. But in, in, in his playoffs, he's been flying around. But I, I agree, it wasn't like he was disappearing when he had four points. Like he was flying end to end. He was rotating hard. A couple of nice help side plays, even if they weren't in the, in the box score, just kind of you know right. impacting shots and all that stuff. So I agree. With and, you. and as a rebounder too, I yep. think you could see kind of the light ball was going off for him that oh we're gonna have a hard time rebounding in this series and he's just kind of upped his investment in that it can help a lot at rebounding as well last night but the whole series like from about some point in game two it seems like john's realized like yeah we're really gonna have to work hard as a rebounder and he just kind of threw him he's thrown himself it seems at that task and i think that helped gallo quite a bit you know um i I have a hard time seeing them keeping Gallo's minutes there, you know, unless Cam can really replicate on both ends everything he did. Um, Because, I mean, the way that I look at Gallo's minutes is that if they're playing from ahead, they can manage his workflow similarly to what they did last night. If they're playing catch-up, they got to play him a ton because you need to get maximum shooting on the court. So, I mean, that, that, that game flow and how you do early and your ability to stay even with or you know, ideally for them, a little ahead of the Bucks helps them kind of right-size Gallo's minutes because once you're down 10, 12 minutes, like, say, halfway through the third quarter, now you're playing Gallo most of the rest of the game just because you need as much three-point shooting as you can get, especially with Trey out and especially, if, you know, depending on if Bogdanovich is kind of really all the way back as a shooter now or if that was just a an aberration in game four. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, before I let you get out of here, we're not going to try to guess on who's going to play and who's not. Uh, it does, you know, just by the nature of the NBA's injury report designations, one has to assume that Giannis is less likely to play. He's listed as doubtful than the other two guys that are on the injury report, Capella and Young. So keep that in mind. Uh, and one of those, one of the reasons why I'm saying that is because I was going to ask you, like, if you're really on both sides, like, how does does anything need to change for the Hawks um, if Giannis is out in terms of their approach? You know, that's obviously a stupid question. You have to change some stuff because Milwaukee either has to play smaller or whatever they're going to do, but. Anything come to mind, like, you know, schematically or approach-wise, if Giannis is out and they know it, you know, 45 minutes before tip-off and they know he's not going to play, what do they do differently? Yeah, so I I, I think it's um, predominantly about watching to see if the Bucks shift to playing smaller, just like you mentioned, 
and adjusting the rotation to kind of account for that. Um, now, you might want to play bigger. By that, I don't mean necessarily go to Capella, Gallo, and JC, but to, the, to play Gallo and JC together where they can you know, function both of them inside on offense and kind of and create more kind of matchup advantages for yourself in that sense. So it'll be interesting to see how Nate adjusts to that. But, I mean, it's... I, I can't really see anything the Bucks are going to do without Giannis apart from trying to get Drew into transition because next, apart from Giannis, he's their best transition player in my mind. And then the half court, it really is Middleton, you know, creating shots. You know, he's a little uh, stiff for a guy you ask to do as much as you're going to ask him to do in a game without Giannis. But we saw you know, he put up 20 points in the fourth quarter in game three. He's capable of kind of carrying that team offensively. And so is it more Cam? You know, is it, again, zero solo? I know most Hawks fans I hear from would love to see that. <laughs> but, you know, um, you know, but what do you do, you know, with, you know, with, with Brooke Lopez if he's becoming more of a focal point and um, where you need more size and rebounding and, and ability to – Lopez challenges the bigs and making sure that a big man can, can help down and then get out and kind of try to close out on him and stuff. So – you know, a lot of that comes down to what the Bucks would do offensively. But for the Hawks, I think it really is about trying to match, you know, seeing more two-guard lineups, whether it's more Teague for them or what have you. But, Ugh. you know, I, I, I feel like it's going to be a – yeah, I know it's tough, but who else is he going to play? Well, that, I was actually going to ask you, like, I'm looking at this Bucks roster, make sure I don't forget anybody, but essentially they're playing eight guys in the series, uh, and that includes Giannis. Uh, their ninth, their ninth guy on paper is either Teague or Thanasis, I guess, as far as the guys who have actually played playoff minutes. Right. And, and Thanasis has basically been a defensive only substitution, and Teague has barely played. Now he's an experienced guy, but you're going fairly small if you're playing Teague and Bryn Forbes. And Bryn Forbes has been pretty bad in the series. Like they don't have a lot of options. I mean, Milwaukee. I assume, and maybe you disagree with me. I think they probably will start. Connaughton or Forbes and not go with Portis if, if Giannis can't play but Portis is going to play a lot you would assume as well I don't know yeah I I think you I think they'll start Connaughton Forbes is just hard to play defensively I mean he, Giannis, he, he better without... Forbes better honestly to play Forbes real minutes he's got to make a handful of threes or it's and, not and, worth it <laughs> and to make it workable um He's got to be on while Giannis is on because Giannis cleans up so much at the rim defensively. Right. And, you know, you can be weaker on the perimeter and at the point of attack defensively when you got to have a guy like Giannis. So I think it's harder to play a forwards more minutes without Giannis because you just don't have that kind of defender there. How much of that can Tenassus give them? I've got to think it's like we're at best half of what Giannis gives them. I mean, oh, I mean, the- I mean, defensively, he's pretty good. And I mean, he, he fouls a lot. He's very active, but he's not, he's not as long as Giannis. And he is a good defender, but he's also, if you think, uh, like, he's basically the Chris Dunn of, of the Bucks in terms of his offense, and probably yeah. even less so. I don't know. He can't forward, do anything on offense. <laughs> forward, forward Chris Dunn. Forward Chris Dunn, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, and that's not necessarily shade of him. But no, Giannis I mean, he's a fine guy, but this is... A, this is one of the best three defenders in the league. It's a conference. It's also know? a conference finals. Like, if, the fact that Milwaukee, if, again, if Giannis can't play, unless they try to get through the entire game with seven guys, like, you're playing a guy you don't want to play. And I know the Hawks have been there, too, at times. Like, don't, don't get me wrong. No one's crying tears in terms of, we all want Giannis to play. But it's a situation where Milwaukee's rotation gets fairly dire in a hurry. Um, yeah. 
So that's just yeah. worth, it's worth it's just worth pointing out because there will be spots to attack, whether it's Teague, whether it's Forbes, whether it's somebody else. There will be room for Nate to kind of scheme around that and maybe not know it may not know it's coming, but once it happens, you can kind of see where the Hawks might attack a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, and the Bucks coaching staff will have you know two days to prepare for Giannis not playing. That's a contingency, obviously, they had to prepare for. But you know, like I'm not going to be shocked if we see. Um, a lot of Elijah Bryant in this game. A, he's a really, really good, most Hawks fans might not even know who he is, but yeah. he's a really good team defender, and he would give them a lot more on that end than Forbes would. That's a low bar, but Elijah Bryant is a really, <laughs> really good team defender, especially for a rookie. They just have and one-way then, guys. I mean, that's what it comes down to. They have a bunch of one-way options for the most part. I, I'm going to tell you, though, Elijah Bryant, you can trust him defensively. You can, you just can't. It's weird. He's a rookie. Yeah. He's, I think, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, somewhere in that range. But he is totally sound as a team defender. And then in terms of two, you know, guys can give you something on both ends of the court. I mean, I'm not going to be shocked to see Jordan Nora. Uh, play some. I mean, he's what, like, thirty-four years old or something like that. He's, you know, he's an oh, older rookie. <laughs> he's a very old, young pro- an old young yeah. player. Yeah, a lot of a lot of ex- you know experience and just a really steady uh, guy who, at times during this season, has given them some steady play. Now, I want to clarify that, like a lot of Hawks fans think, like in the middle of game two, three, that Nate should have just tried turn to Cam middle of game. Young guys need to go into a game knowing what's going to be asked of them, knowing what their responsibilities are, et cetera. And now the Bucks coaching staff has space to do that with Elijah Bryant, the space to do that with Jordan Warren, say, hey, we're going to ask you to play 12 minutes. On offense, we're going to ask you to do these two things. On defense, we're going to ask you to do you know this couple of things. So let's you know spend time getting this young player coached up around the specific template of ass that they're going to have for them. And so I fully expect to see some Bryant Nuora in the next game Whew. for stretches to help them avoid, you know, ex- extended minutes of Forbes on where Giannis can't be on. I think, and, and, and maybe to completely avoid you know, Teague, you know, in the rotations, but you just, you have to change in my mind, you have to change your expectation when a coaching staff has a couple of days to maybe prepare a couple of young guys who have something to offer like those two do um, so that's one thing I'm kind of kind of watching going in, and the Hawks can't really know what that is, you know, because it'd be brand spanking new stuff. But I, you know, I, I I'll just say this: I I think if Bryant's going to play a good bit, if Giannis doesn't play as we expect, and I think the next thing is that it's not going to surprise me if we get eight to ten minutes to Jordan or two. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea what Bud's going to do. I think it wouldn't surprise me if he defaulted the defense, which you kind of alluded to with Bryant, just and try to muck it up and uh, try to win a game like they did with that. I think it was game three against Brooklyn when it was, you know, in the 80s and they were just, it was just a hideous basketball game and they just were able to make enough plays down the stretch and maybe that's their best bet. But yeah, I mean, it's really hard to handicap the series right now with all the uncertainty with the injuries. You know, Vegas is basically just punting it to a coin flip at this moment in time, which basically. At least in my mind, the betting market is saying they think the Hawks are at least slightly better right now, but Milwaukee has home court, and that kind of leads you to a coin flip situation. Um, I, don't, I don't know what to make of that, but that's uh, the prognostication is essentially impossible until we know what's going on with Trey and Giannis. Yeah, and I and I have to think that I mean I I feel like I know less about Trey than I do about Giannis, you know, just because we're able to actually see kind of the injury and, and um, the listing. I mean, doubtful. I mean, it, yeah. it, it would not be, a, it would not be terribly shocking if he played, but I think 
well, you have to assume he doesn't play based on the listing that they gave him. Yeah, but but I wonder on both sides, depending on how bad Trey's situation is, if both of them are just held out until they their team gets to a you know winner go home elimination. Yeah, yeah I think that's the advantage Hawks. By the way, I think we I, I said that earlier, but I, I do yeah. think that if you just took Trey and Giannis off these teams, provided Capella plays, because that's that's not a small thing either, and he's questionable. But if you just if it's just those two guys, in addition to you know Hunter and Divincenzo that are already out, I'd lean to Atlanta in that circumstance, um, just because. You know, I think I, I just trust the Hawks' depth a little bit more than Milwaukee's. Yeah, I do too. I, I do. I would just want to remind myself to have a little caution to see what the Bucks coaching staff is able to offer Drew and Chris to, to oh, yeah. maybe open the open their offensive you know, pick it up a little bit. So that's a wait and see. But I totally agree with you on paper. That I think that if both teams are without their best player, the Hawks have a a more legitimate rotate like eight to nine man yeah. rotation than the Bucks do. I, I would say this as well as a word of caution. If Trey ends up playing and Giannis does not, you're gonna you're gonna I would say you're gonna have some overconfidence out there potentially. And I think right. people should learn a lesson from from last night when Milwaukee was suddenly a ten point favorite with Trey out and they got blitzed out of the gate. And that's not always going to happen but this is it's a one game sample size I, I, the hawks will be favored in the game i'm fa- i'm fairly confident if trey plays and Giannis doesn't but that does not mean that it's suddenly uh you know a walkover where the hawks are going to the finals and if Giannis is out for the series and trays and so uh, a lot of uncertainty even in the best case yeah. scenario which is everybody plays for atlanta and Giannis doesn't play you know in terms of their actual likelihood to win that is the best case scenario but even then it might be tough it's not a given yeah and and, and maybe my last point here uh, for fans to remember, like what, what watching the Bucks last night, it's not just that they like were lackadaisical or whatever. Maybe there was some of that, but considering the schedule these teams played this year, and now they're playing every the night, every team, every player, and every team that's playing every game right now, they're all exhausted. Every one of them is exhausted right now, and so I think it's except for Cam, <laughs> except for Cam, yeah, um, and. Um, and so it's just human nature to feel like, okay, if I can, you know, go at 80% and, you know, save a little bit. And, you know, I think that's just kind of human nature. I think you have to try to fight through it. Just like, you know, John Collins being a great example of that um, last night. But it's, these guys are human beings. So just like, don't go on Twitter like, oh my God, these guys played late. You know, these guys are tired. So, you know, maybe try to keep that in perspective. Well, I mean, think, of, think about, I mean, obviously this is not apples to apples, but I think about, you know, I'm I'm very tired watching and covering this nonsense, and I'm, and I'm sitting in a chair. Uh, these guys are uh, just grueling and grinding their way through this entire thing. So, I'm I'm really intrigued by it. I think you and I are both basketball nerds that enjoy this stuff even beyond the uh, sure. the interest in the Hawks specifically. And I'm fascinated to see how this series turns, both with who's available and the adjustments. And you know, Bud is uh, obviously a very familiar face to Hawks fans, but he's been maligned, and Nate's done a great job this year. And there's lots of tweaks that are going to happen in these next uh, at least two games. Uh, we are guaranteed to have at least two more in this series, if not three. So. I'm intrigued by it. I know you are too. Uh, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate you doing yeah. this, man. My pleasure. I think it's going to continue to be a competitive series, almost regardless of who's in and out. So I think it should be continue to be great basketball watching. 
it should be fun. I'm sure you can catch Glenn on ATL on 29 with my arch nemesis, Kevin Chouinard, uh, on there regularly, including yesterday. No I will, uh, people should read that. People, people, read. people should listen to that podcast. I did. I am a listener slash subscriber to ATL on 29. We are not like directly, you know, in this grudge match of, of competition. I listen to that show and I appreciate your contributions on it. Just don't tell Kevin. If you listen to this podcast, don't tell Kevin because he's, he's never going to hear this. No chance. It's all Glenn. All Glenn. <laughs> it's all Glenn. <laughs> oh, the well, the thank most Glenn statement I could make here at the end. <laughs> there, exactly. Exactly. It was very off-brand for you. Uh, all right. As for everybody else, please subscribe. Check out Glenn's stuff on Twitter. I will tag him in the description and all of that. And we'll have a new podcast after Game 5 on Thursday. So stay tuned for that.